Good evening. You don't mind. You've probably seen me. And I want you to know that I really... The 12 and 12 says that the joy of living is the theme of AA 12. To recapture that joy of being alive, really living our lives. And I say recapture it for some of us, we never really had it. But to be able to let our lives come alive and be meaningful experiences, not only for us, but for the people in the world around us. And, and I see and feel that spirit here this evening. And looking at you, it's quite obvious to me that you really did not have very much trouble arriving here. Looking at this group, I would assume that uh, you awakened one beautiful Monday or Tuesday morning and looked out of your window, probably looking out over the swimming pool in the backyard, remembering that you did say a little something out of keeping with the suaveness of your character's party over the weekend, which indicated that you might have perhaps maybe have a, a little problem with your drinking and and as I gaze upon you I'm sure that the brightness of your light, the, your intellectual acumen probably caused you to to gently lift the telephone receiver off the hook and and dial information to ask where the next meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was. So <laughs> you would arrive. You know I really don't believe that, don't you? <laughs> My name is Jack Boland, and I'm an alcoholic, and through the grace of God, working in my life, through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not had a drink or a sedating or tranquilizing drug, anything that would chemically change my mind since July the 10th, 1953, and that is my miracle. It's one of them. And I'm so grateful, I'm so, I'm so grateful for my physical sobriety that I, I do not have the words to tell you how grateful I am. But if that's all that I had was my physical sobriety, I probably would not be here talking to you this evening. Because for me, the program is for what goes beyond that sobriety. Five or six or seven or eight years ago, you know how it is with time, I, my telephone rang in my office one afternoon. It was about probably 1.30 or 2 o'clock. I'd just come back from lunch. I was reminded of the story a few minutes ago, looking around at you and marveling at the circumstances that, that brought you here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just have a, a, a mini, mini flash on the screen of each of us, the things that triggered you know, that last thing that, that brought us here. Wouldn't you love to see that with Sir Oliver? Well, this guy called me, and he said that uh, he'd heard about me, and someone told him that I might be able to help him. And, and the business that I'm in, uh, I get lots of calls from lots of people wanting different kinds of help, and so I thought I would identify where he was coming from, and uh, I asked him how he thought I might help him. And he said, well... I'm I really have I really have a problem. And I said, Well tell me about it. Tell me about it. And he said, Well I just lost my job. Well I didn't lose my job. The company 
was indicted a month or so ago, and I'm one of the officers in the company. And as he continued to speak, I remembered that the story of that indictment was in the local newspapers in Detroit. And I said, oh, you really do have a problem. He said, that's not why I called you, though. And I said, well, tell me why, why you called me. He said, well, my landlord has locked me out of my apartment because I haven't paid my rent, and, and I, I, I haven't even been able to shave today. And I said, well, that, that's, that's a problem. He said, that's not why I called you. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's a fairly long story. The uh, finance company picked my car up yesterday, and I don't have wheels. And then he went on, and he said, my fiancé gave me the ring back, and she really does not want to speak to me again. This happened the way that I'm telling it to you. He said, my parents have asked me to not, to not ever darken their door again, that I have been the source of shame long enough or more. And I said, you really do have a problem. He said, that's not why I called you. And I said, why did you call me? And he said, well, I'm in a Chinese restaurant. I had my lunch, and I don't have the money to pay for my lunch. I just had enough to make this telephone call. And, and he said, the reason I called you was that I opened my fortune cookie, and there was nothing in it. You understand that, don't you? It takes exactly what it takes, precisely what it takes. It took a lot for me. And if one moment of my experience prior to coming into Alcoholics Anonymous was lifted from me now, I would probably disappear from in front of this microphone. It took everything. And each of the things that happened to me were good, wonderful. I submit to you that the best things that have ever happened to us were the worst things that happened to us. We are here because of the worst things that happened to us. And so then, were they the worst things or are they the best? And so, if they were the best things, let's call them the best. In a group this time, quite possible. As a matter of fact, I'm sure there's somebody here this evening who has been in the program for a while, and the worst thing that could happen to you in your sobriety just happened. How could it happen to me? I've been going to meetings and took a fifth step four or five years ago, I think. How could this happen to me? And of course, the answer is because. Because it needed to happen, because we are living under that great law of of cause and effect. But I want you to know, if you are having such an experience, you're in a position to experience that miracle because that's what this program is all about. Grasping. Uh, Nina read it to us. There are those persons who are incapable of grasping and developing a program that requires rig rigorous honesty. Grasping and developing. I submit to you again that sobriety is not the objective of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Never was. You can't begin to experience the program of Alcoholics Anonymous until you have sobriety. I've never seen one drunk practicing the program, have you? So we're not going for sobriety. That's not the objective. That's not what we're heading for. It's what we have, maybe only moments of it. Last night, I had one of the most delightful uh, moments that I've experienced for a long time. 
I saw a friend that I've known for a few years. A lovely, wonderful, goofy person. Goofy? You bet. She didn't know that she was goofy, but some of the rest of us uh, did. And Nikki uh, was attending her fourth meeting last night. She's been sober four days and then four meetings. You know the feeling that comes over us when we see another person who is about, who is already into the experience of the miracles, the joy of life returning, sanity, but, but more than just sanity, uh, the awakening of our spirit to the goodness of life and joy of living and, and I treasure seeing your face last night and, and we know what you have in store. We know the incredible experience that is in store for you. Not just the experience, and she, and we were talking last night and she said, I think there's hope for me. And I said, I know there's hope for you. There's nothing but hope. If we're willing to, if we are willing to take certain steps, if we're willing to grasp and develop a manner of living with the commitment to transformation. You see, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is not about sobriety. It is about transformation. It is about you and me becoming the persons that we were destined to be but never were. It's about overcoming, and, and not just overcoming, it's about transcending. It's about developing new personalities and, and characters. Uh, the, the program, the book, talks about rebirth, being born again. Not in the religious sense, but in the sense that you and I are experiencing. If there's one seeming tragedy in, in this program, in the 33 years that I've been a part of it, it has been that, that there has seemed to be a tendency for us to, to come to believe that all that we're seeking is our physical sobriety rather than the transformation. And to read the program and the language of it and to go to the meetings to stay sober. And yes, it is. I told you that my physical sobriety is, is my single greatest gift because without it I have nothing. The excitement, the absolute incredible excitement of, of being given a way of life that guarantees me that moment by moment every day can be my greatest day, that I can live each day as though it were my last day, loving it, rejoicing in it, marveling at my life and marveling at the problems and at the seeming tragedies that occur because I know that contained within every seeming defeat or trial or difficulty is an equivalent or greater good. Do you believe that about yourself? It's true. It's a principle. And we're dealing with a program of universal principles. That's all. It is a fact that contained within every problem is an equivalent of greater good if we can believe in it, if we can keep our joy. Spiritual consciousness, the big book says. The tendency, though, is to fall back into our alcoholic goofiness. Before I get started into my talk, you, you notice that I said that my name is Jack Bowen. And I have about as much anonymity as the, except at the level of the radio and the press and, and the movies, particularly the movies. I've never had any trouble with my identity, <laughs> my anonymity at the movies. And anywhere else, I don't care. You see, the greatest thing that has ever happened to me is to be a part. And I announce it. Not, I'm on radio and television a lot, and I never say that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but and recovering alcoholic who is a member of a 12-step program. I love you and what you stand for. 
In 33 years of staying sober, I have never seen one alcoholic suffer as a result of their anonymity being violated. That's the biggest bunch of garbage that you and I have ever heard, really. And if you will read the pamphlet that comes from General Service, you will see that it was never intended that we were the ones who were to be protected. It's the program that, that's being protected from us. You understand that, don't you? <clears throat> you know, it's so strange. Those drunks that I drank with, and I drank with a bunch of them, and we raised all manner of hell, and we were, and came into our, drove into the driveway at 2 o'clock in the morning, and beer cans falling all over the place, and then shouting and not caring what happened. And my neighbor across the street did the same thing, and I shouted at him, and we didn't care who knew that we were out at 2 o'clock in the morning. And two years later, when we, when, when we were in the program, I'm Jack B, and he's John W. Golly, <laughs> you know who the last person was that knew that we were drunk? We. The neighbors knew it for years. <laughs> they said, my God, why did it take you so long? You show me two new people coming in here tonight. One's the alcoholic. And I'll show you two goofy people. And I mention that to you because there are some spouses of us who are here tonight. And I defy you looking around the table if you do not know who is there to select the drunk of the two, because once we put the drinking problem aside, we're all almost the same. <clears throat> not quite. And the reason I say not quite is that the last thing that we will ever surrender, not the booze, is our suffering. The last thing we'll ever give up is our suffering. You know that, don't you? Why? Because we were so good at it. God, we were good at suffering. We manufactured misery. The book, big book tells us that we did. We were all losers going somewhere to lose to shoot ourselves out of the saddle before we crossed the finish line first. We dared not win. We suffered a lot. But our Al-Anon members were even greater sufferers than we. And I say this lovingly because some of my heroines and heroes in this program putting the drinking problem aside, then getting on with the grasping and developing of this manner of living has been the joy of my life, and my life has changed again. And, and some people that I've known for a period of time that, saw, that I've spoken to this week and have marveled at how I have changed since the last time. There's a time in that, my life when that would have been an insult. <laughs> the very me change, if you think I need to change. <laughs> the practicing of the principles of this program is important to me now, my excitement, my fascination, my joy in watching. It's, a, it's an undiminished pleasure that a couple of months ago someone sent me a tape from someone in, in Oregon, a person that I've never met, and it was a short note, and she said that someone had sent her that tape, and she did not know where she got it. She thought I would be interested, and I was. It was a talk that I'd given in Texas exactly 25 years ago, and I listened to it, and, and I marveled at that tape. It was a pretty good talk, but if you heard it, you would not hear what I heard. I'd been sober eight years, and there'd been many difficulties in those eight years. There was a, there was a real overcoming that <clears throat> was necessary in my life, and I'll get into that in just a few moments. But in that talk that I heard me give 25 years ago, 
as I listened to my words unfold, memories came back and feelings rushed back in. And I could remember where I was. Not the physical location, but where I was inside myself. The excitement. You see, when I first came in and it started happening to me, I was afraid that it would disappear. I thought that the magic might only be transitory. I came into the world's worst AA group. You've heard it said there are no bad AA groups. Forget it, there are. <clears throat> Let me tell you how bad this group was. It was seven years old. It had about 25 people, and it was the only group in, a, in the city of my birth. The oldest sobriety was a guy who had 15 months. And he'd moved in from Brooklyn. <laughs> and he was ready to move back to Brooklyn after being in that group. It's just a bunch of drunks getting together and talking and, hur and hurrying out to the poker game and rushing home. And there was no recovering. There was no system. There was no, there were, there was no concept. There was no vision. There was no dream. There was no excitement and joy. There was no sanity in that group. And I lasted just a short time, and I was back then but listening to that tape and marveling at, at what had happened to me. And I became aware of how glad I was that I came into such an incredibly inept group of people because in that group, when I came back and my sobriety began, there was no one there that I wanted to be like. You know what the big book says? That we need to select prototype persons. It doesn't use that language. If you want what we have, and willing to go to any length to get it, I didn't want what they had. And I didn't have anything, but I didn't want what they had. And so I turned to the book and to the 12 and 12 that had just been published and released. And I, who had never followed anyone's instructions, you know, Christmas toys under the tree, instructions, forget it. I know how to put this. And I took that book, and the 12 and 12, and started doing the thing that it said to do. And there was no one to tell me not to, because no one else had a big book. They weren't practicing it, and they didn't know that I was. I started doing those things, like it said. And when it said, with all the earnestness at my command, I'd been such a big phony that I looked to see where the earnestness was, and I, I pumped up another batch of earnestness. I got really earnest with it. I actually made a list of the persons I had harmed. I made a list. I put their names down. And then to check me out, I went over the list, and I tried to remember, were there other persons? And sure enough, there were other persons. And I put their names down. And it said to... Too, that the steps told me to get in touch with them and to make my amends to them. And you think I wanted to do it? It would have been nice to, not, to have done it, wouldn't it? But the book said, my instruction book said, to make amends except when to do so would injure them. And I tried to figure out a way to, in some instances, where it might injure them so I wouldn't have to do it. But, but the, it said, you got to do it. And one day an incredible thing happened. I found out that a, a fellow that I'd worked for, he moved up in the organization, and I took over his position of responsibility, and he moved on to greater things, and yet I was still under him. And because he had chosen me, there was a certain responsibility that I had, and I really let the bottom fall out in that organization. And uh, about 24 hours before they fired me, I quit. But I left his neck hanging on the line. And he was one of the persons at the head of my list. I had not only done this to him, but I had said some rather uncomplimentary things to a man who had only befriended me. And this guy was a big, tough guy. And 
I knew I, he was coming to town. I was quite nervous about going to the, the hotel, Hotel Mono, to meet him. And so on the way, I stopped by um, the house of a couple of members of AA in that group to get a cup of coffee and to be reinforced. And I told them what I was going to do, and they said, you don't really need to do that. All you need to do is to have the desire to do it. And that sounded pretty refreshing to me. But I, I thought, no, the book says I, I need to do it. And so I went over and to the hotel really nervous. You've got to know. I was shaking in my boots. This was strange stuff. This went against my whole way of thinking or life until that time. And I buzzed him from one of the house phones, and he came on the... I was hoping he wasn't there, but he was. And I didn't have to tell him who I was. He recognized my voice, and I thought he was going to hang up. And I said, Ray, uh, please, just give me two minutes of your time. And when I got up to his floor and... and got off the elevator and walked down the hall, he was standing in the doorway with one foot in the hall and one foot in his room looking at his watch. He was going to give me exactly two minutes. And I said to him, Ray, I'm an alcoholic, and, and I didn't know that I was. And I, I wanted you to know how sorry I am for the things that I did. I will get in touch with certain, and I named the people in the organization that he still worked for, and I will put... I will set the story, the record straight. I'm trying to do something with my life. And he said, come in the room. And after a long two hours together going over things, and I walked out of the room and he had his arms around my shoulders. And that was, that was one of the first actions that I took. And there was no one to tell me to do that, but the book told me to do that, and I had to do it. Now I want to ask you, is it a strange coincidence that about a year later, when I was, had recovered to the point of being able to assume some responsibility. I had to move on from where I was. And I was praying about it. I was, the book said, to take all these things to the power in prayer. And I did so. And I was asking for direction and guidance, asking only to have my life be fitted so that I would be of maximum service to God and the people around me, because that's what it said. And I didn't know what to do. And one day, I received a telephone call in the place which I worked, and there was a man who said, you don't, don't know me, my name is John Mosley. Uh, I have a position that I, would I think I would like to offer you. Will you come over to Hotel Roanoke and meet me for lunch? And, and I did. He told me a strange story. The night before, he was seated in the lobby of that hotel. He was a regional director of a national organization, reading his newspaper, and as he finished his newspaper, a person sitting across from him in the lobby of Hotel Roanoke, put his paper down. They stood up at the same time. They introduced themselves. They discovered that they were in similar business, similar companies with almost identical positions of responsibility. And John Mosley said to Ray Hess, you know, this is my third time here in Roanoke. I want to hire someone to take over this territory and, and ultimately the district. I haven't been able to find the right person, and I know that you... Uh, you, you perhaps know some people here. Would you by any chance know a person who might fill this job? And Ray Hess said, as a matter of fact, I do. There's a guy that used to work for me. And uh, almost a year ago, he, as a matter of fact, he came to me in this very hotel and told me a remarkable story. The guy is an alcoholic. He was the goofiest guy, the, one of the best salesmen we ever had in our organization. But strange. Strange. But if he's still sober, he's your man. 
And they talked. They had breakfast together. Talked about me. And he called me. And when I went to see him, he, uh, uh, he offered me a position. Told me what it was and offered me the job. And I said, well, don't you want to check me out? He said, I don't need to. I've already checked you out. I said, but he said, you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got the job on the spot. Now, I ask you, was that a spiritual experience? Suppose I had not made my amends to Ray. In 33 years of being a part of this program, I have seen the most incredible things happen in the lives of men and women who will practice these principles, who will grasp and develop a manner of living, and who will believe that we're reaching for far more than our sobriety and even more than our sanity, but that the power that has brought us together wants us to have the very best and to be the very best. It's one of the reasons why I'm so impressed with this group of people here tonight. The very best might not be good enough for us. I was born and bred in the briar patch of my parents. My mother was a, a beautiful person, and that's not just a quirk of my memory. She was. She was like any one of us. A handsome couple with a great future and with assets that had been provided. But they were alcoholic and did not know it, and it was in the 1920s. In those first early years of my memory, and I know because I've gone back as the book tells me, back to the earliest days, remembering the things that happened to me. And I can recall my early childhood and the sweetness of it. And the sweetness of it, not because of the life around me, but because of the sweetness that was in me. But my earliest recollections of my parents were the, the moments of bickering in the night. The time that my uncle came and my mother's brother and my father got into a fight on Christmas Day and the... There were two people in blue suits that came and took them off, too, to jail. I remembered that the first lie that I, the first lie that I can remember telling was my first month in school. Six-year-old in school, lying to my teacher to cover for my father. Well, she hadn't even asked me anything about my father, but you know how it is that we who have alcohol suffer for them and hide even from ourselves? When I was six years old, I did. In the morning, when I was still six, and the fight at the breakfast table, and my father left. And before I was seven years of age, my father was found dead that January morning, frozen to death, between the railroad tracks and the river in the city of my birth, Roanoke, Virginia. He had lost everything just like that. And he Drank too much canned heat, a bum he was. This guy was such a straight. Within two months, my mother was dead. She was a practicing alcoholic, developed the symptoms of appendicitis, and in her alcoholism did not receive medical attention. The appendix burst, and I was out of the... And I was glad. When I took my first inventory, was searching in the fearless inventory, and went back and looked, I could remember as a child being glad that they were gone. Now my life would get better, wouldn't it? My maternal grandmother, the only near relative that I had, took me out of the Catholic orphanage to protect me. Her physician had given her a little toddy to drink because of the nature of my mother's and nothing bad. This woman had never had a drink in her life, and she was an instant alcoholic. That little toddy tasted really good to my granny. 
and she got another one and another one, and she was off to something that you would hardly believe in. By the time that I was 10 years of age, I'd been in and out of more orphanages, not Kansas City kind, but Southern kind. There was no hope for me in my life. Spent some time with my grandmother, and on, this, on my 10th birthday, late in the day, I can remember that I had just come back from downtown, having been sent to collect the welfare check. And uh, this was in the days of the Depression. My grandmother was too drunk to go downtown. The, uh, I could hear, seated beside the railroad tracks, the raucous sounds of drunken laughter from this little old shack in which we lived on Shenandoah Avenue, between 9th and 10th Street, underneath the ch I'd also stopped by and picked up a quart of buttermilk that they gave away to, well, to, to indigents. I earned money by selling dentine chewing gum downtown, outside restaurants. And that money was taken from me for my grandmother to drink. There's no one in my life that, that offered any hope. There was, there was no prototype person there, only the goofiness, the insanity. On my 10th birthday, I was barefooted, but it was because I had no shoes. And no one had remembered that it was my birthday. There was no birthday cake. They weren't about to. It was not a gift. And sitting on that track late in the day with the sun setting in the west behind me, the hopelessness of my life was already coming upon me. And I recall hearing a train preparing to leave the station just a few blocks, downtown Roanoke. Those days, this was a railroad town, and those days there were no airlines as we know them today, if you will be. Uh, railway transportation was really big, and passenger trains were very long, many, many cars, and frequently with two engines up front to pull them. And I sat on the bank waiting for the train to pass, and it pa would pass as close to me as from here to where you are, Owen. And at the level at which I sat, I could look right in the windows, and the engines passed, and that was exciting for a kid at 10 and the train. And I love to sit there. I'd done it on several occasions. See. Living there, all I knew for sure is that we were going to move soon. We had just moved in a short time ago. And when we moved, we didn't have to call Allied Van Lines to move us. We usually moved early in the morning without paying the rent. Alcoholism. Alcoholism. And this train picked up speed and was passing, and I looked in the windows and could see the white linen on the tables. And to me, it seemed like that every table there was a family and kids and everyone loved each other and 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 I, I, it was a world that I had not known I would have given anything on earth to have been a part of that world and and I had been in my 10 years looking and seeking and wanting to find the, my place and there was no place would I ever find anyone that would love a little boy like me was my thought and that train passed and the porters were there their white jackets and I would have given anything to have been on that train going west. Anything. It was my first feeling for a geographical cure, a change. It passed, and I settled down into the dust and into the despair. But not really, because there was something in me. There was a spark in me. I, you know that my whole life I never surrendered. Later, when, on those attempts that I made to take my life, I did not really do it because somehow I knew that there was a reservoir of something and that there was an answer and that I would find it and that if I killed myself, I would not find it. 
I took my first drink when I was about 15 or 16, just like you, and I was in high school, and with, there were four of us, four boys, four really nice kids. George had borrowed his father's car. George was the richest kid in school. He had his father's Chrysler. And another one had, uh, had, had purchased the cigarettes. Another one had the wine, and I was just along to be there. They were, wanted me to smoke and, and to take my first drink, and they were putting the, the peer pressure on me, and, and, and I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And finally George said the magic word, Come on, Jack, take one drink. It won't hurt you. And I thought, that's right. It won't, it won't hurt me. Incidentally, George died a few weeks ago. He never made it. I took that first drink of wine because I knew it would not make any difference and it would get them off my back. And I took that drink and, and handed the, the bottle of old 50-cent wine back up in the front seat. And a couple of minutes passed. And, you know, I just began to feel so good I could hardly stand it. And I said, George, Pass that bottle back here again. See, something electric had already happened to me. It was quite obvious to me that it, wasn't ha but it was not happening to them. And he passed it back. But you see, if one drink made you feel the way this was making me feel, my mind was expanding. There was a somethingness that I cannot describe. I can only report. It was taking place. And I took another drink. And I knew that this was for me. I knew it. It was not like what happened to my father. It was the opposite of what happened to my father. My father was a drunk. I, I submit to you that anything that makes you feel the way that those first drinks made me feel, you, will, you cannot and you will not go for it again and again. If prune juice made me feel that way, I would have had a real problem. And I tell you that the way I felt is the way that we are supposed to feel. That evening, may have, I may have reached the peak. That first night. We do, you know. We peak out early, and then because, it, we, because we had that experience, we keep reaching for it and trying to recapture it. And as we sink lower and lower and lower and have less and less, we attempt to drink more and in different ways trying to get back to that point where we were. And never will we be there again. And never was I ever back there again. Although I could not see it with the passage of time, I continued to drink in time, not so that I would feel good, but just so that I would feel not quite so bad. And that transition took place so gradually that I was not aware of it. And then in time I drank, because if I did, if I did not drink, I could hardly bear to live. And I drank because it was impossible to not drink. There was no way that I could not drink. I had to drink. I had to. It was an obsession of the mind. And I did not know that I was an alcoholic. But, you know, we alcoholics are funny. We're the only people on earth who fall up. We fall up. And the vision that I had, the, the, the commitment to the good life, as that young person, caused me to rise so often to the top of whatever organization in which I found myself. And I was given opportunity after opportunity, and, and, and I succeeded. I did. Looked like I was going to make it. I took all the credit. Things looked good. I was the life of the party. Then I noticed that I was not the life of the party, that some of the parties that I was the life of, I went outside and cried, and you never did that. 
the middle of the party, I would, I, I would feel like I was going insane or that I was already insane, and I would, I would, I would lose, I would seem to lose my identity. And blackout. You never awakened in the morning to, and, and looked out to see if the car was there, did you? And then one morning you looked out and it really wasn't there, and you didn't know where it was. And you spent several days explaining where the car was that you did not know where it was. You, did you ever do that? Unable to admit that, that I could not remember where I parked that thing. Finally finding it, living in terror, filled with anger and fear, the development of an overwhelming sense of fear that, that ultimately required that every call that I made in my business, I had to force myself to do it. I had to force myself, make myself. You know, we don't often talk enough about the fear that we experience, the incredible, unbelievable apprehension that ultimately resulted in an agoraphobia that immobilized us. And the only thing, relief that we had was when we took that drink. And I took that drink just to be able to go and do the things that I had to do. And finally, one morning, I awakened in the city of my birth, well, out in the suburbs, and I had a wonderful idea, and, and I was astonished that it had not occurred to me earlier. I knew what the solution would be to my problem. I had many problems, but I, but I knew who my problems were. My problems were people. You've never been to your own funeral. There were times when I would go to my funeral, and, and when I did, I was in a room about the size of this room, not quite as wide as this room, much more beautiful than this room. And I would be standing over in the corner right here, and my beer would be right where that platform is, and the casket would be just about as high as that table is. And I was in that casket, and there was a, this long line of people coming through this door, apparently, and, and their way down this side of the hallway, and beautiful flowers everywhere, and you've never seen a room more beautiful, and the, the, the anguish that was in the air as these people filed slowly past my coffin, pausing cheerfully to look upon me, and each of those suckers assuming their proportionate responsibility for having put me there. And in my mind as I watched my funeral, and they said, and I could hear what they said, each one of them, I could hear their words, and they tried to make their amends to me in the casket, and I would have none of it. And as I heard their words, and I would say, that's right. You did it. The line moved on. I knew who my problems were. And in time, I would get them. I would get them. Particularly Garnet. Garnet was my brother-in-law. <clears throat> I never did like Garnet. And that was the best I ever felt for him. From there, it went downhill in a hurry, I'll tell you. In time, Garnet became an obsession with me. I spent a great deal of time thinking about Garnet, planning his demise. I was going to fix Garnet. I don't mean to repair him. I mean to put him beyond repair. I pondered the way to do it. I savored thinking. As, as I went about my travels, I, I would think of different ways to fix him. And there were certain ingredients that had to be involved. One of the things was that that, of course, I, I was not to be caught in the experience. Although, if I should be caught, everyone would understand why I did it to Garnet and would be glad with me. 
I figured out the perfect crime, except, you see, Garnet had to know that I did it. And I couldn't figure out an arrangement that would permit me to not be caught and still have him know that I did it. But there was a time when I stuck a gun in his stomach one time and came that close to pulling the trigger. So you see, when I came in this program, and it's the step that says to restore me to sanity, I had no difficulty with that. I carried a shovel in the back of my car. And it was not for snow. It was for garnet. It was to... Are you getting the picture of the... of what was happening in my alcoholism? Until this day when I awakened, I knew what the solution was. It was to move to California, to get away from all those people and start my life all over again. And I was earnest. I was sincere. I was excited for the first time in a long time. I had hope. Now, you've got to know that no one else knew that I did not have hope. I did not go around saying, I'm losing my joy and my hope. I... Alcoholics don't do that. Down at Silver Gables, my favorite bar, I was the life of the party. And I was the, the big spender. You, you understand that. This guy, I know you do. <clears throat> Since I was going to California, I went down to announce to my friend the wonderful life I was going to experience in California. I had to embellish it a bit. I'd already received the best offer. And if you're going to go to California, you don't leave. By the time I did leave for California, that group of people were so... And in the, that brief period of time between my decision and, and the day that I left, the bartender had, in mowing his lawn, cut off his big toe. And, and you know how we felt about our bartenders. We loved our bartenders. And since I was the one who was going to move to California and had more time than the others, I was appointed the person to be in charge of the fund uh, that we were raising all of this group of social equals and friends who gathered at Silver Gables. I lost track, really, of how much they gave me. You know how that is. It, lawyers call it co-mingling. You know, his money and my money sort of got mixed up. And The story I'm about to tell you will convince you if you did not already know that you cannot trust a drunk. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about those other guys. You see, Fred, the bartender, kept not getting his money. His toe was well. He was back at work. I had not gone to California yet. And where was his funds? Where was his money? Now, here is what really upset me. My friends, people that I bought beer and booze for for years, made a list of the monies that they had contributed that totaled several thousand dollars. It's not, there was not a word of truth and what they said, alcoholics will lie about how much they contribute. As a minister in a church, I know that this is so to this, this day. But I found it out in several gables when Fred cut his toe off. I arrived in California and did what a, a business executive would do. I sent out my resume, and some time passed, and, and uh, my sales records had been just really good. And, in a, a few days or weeks, I began to go through the interviews, and, and finally one day I received a, a call from the vice president of the company of my second of choice, headquartered in New York. And he said, Jack, we've checked you out, and your sales and back on the East Coast really were, and we've got this wonderful opportunity for you in Orange County, and we'd, we'd like to... And he made me an offer. It was more money than I'd ever earned, and almost unlimited expense account and bonus that 
at regular intervals, the company car, Perk. And I really wanted the other job and thought I would get it, and I was about to tell him, no, I, I let me consider it. But the, the keen, cunning mind of the alcoholic came to my rescue. And a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, and that's the, the position. The next day, the company of my first choice called, headquartered in Chicago. And the vice president of marketing and sales said the same thing to me, and he said, Jack, we'd love to have you accept this position. And it was a salary larger than I had ever received before, and bonuses regularly, and an unlimited expense account, and, and a company car. And, and neither of these positions had supervision, direct supervision. I, I was working alone in California, no one to check me out. And I was about to tell him that I'm sorry, I've already accepted another, another position, but the keen, cunning mind of the alcoholic came to my rescue. Two of the best salaries that I had ever earned. I was already wondering how I was going to fake those two expense accounts, but I knew that I would be able to do it. How I would handle two company cars might be <laughs> difficult, but I would arrange it. And so I told him I would be delighted to assume that responsibility. And that's when the bottom really did fall out of my life. I was unable to function or to perform, and it was incredible. I cannot describe to you the insanity of my world and of my life. Now, here's the amazing thing. It's very important that you hear what I'm about to say. I really had a sincere desire to change my life when I went to college. And within nine months, I had recreated my world in California precisely as I had left it in Virginia. Exactly. It was astonishing. It was unbelievable. I had the same people in my life. They just had different names. My life was an exact reflection of what it was. Nothing had changed at all because I had not changed. I did not know at that time that our outer world is but an exact reflection of our inner states of mind. It was not until some time later when Bill Wilson, you know, if you've ever heard Bill talk, and I did on many occasions, he never talked without mentioning the a book that had a great impact on his life, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. William James, who is the father of known as the father of psychology in this country, had said that one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century was the fact by changing our inner states of mind, we actually change our outer circumstances. I'd never known that there was a direct correlation between my inner state of mind and my outer circumstances. And I can tell you tonight that I know it, and that for each of you, your life is what you think and feel. Your life is what you believe about yourself. Your outer life is a reflection of your image of yourself, what you think about yourself and believe about yourself. And that is a law that has never been broken, nor shall it ever be. And that's why this program is so incredible to me, because it gives me the opportunity to continue to be transformed in, inwardly, always reaching for outer objectives and goals that are secondary and important, things only to be enjoyed while the real joy, which is why I believe that one day I could not bear it anymore, and I called New York and said, I resign. And the vice president of the company of my second choice said, we're glad, Jack, there's something wrong with you. Shattered me when he said that. And I called Chicago, the company of my first choice, and told him the same thing. And he gave me a similar story. He said, we were just about to let you go. I couldn't understand it. And I took my then wife, the mother of my three sons, and those three sons, and drove back to Virginia. I hardly remember. Right.
and I deposited them with her family, and I went off to die, literally to die. I wanted to be dead, and I went back to the Skid Row, that part of the city in which I had come from as a child. And I lived there in one room in a house that was about to fall down. And it had a bed that was like this, and everything that I owned was in a box under that bed. And I could hear footsteps. The, 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 there, were, were an out, there was an outside set of stairs, an old wooden set of stairs, and footsteps, just people walking up those steps, caused terror to arise in me. I pulled the covers up over my head and hoped that I would die. My only source of income was $22.50 a week from the unemployment compensation. And I had to force myself to go down to get it, but I had to have something to drink. And you can't drink very much on $22.50. And I knew that I would kill myself tomorrow or the next day. And I would sit in the park, city park, watching the squirrels and wishing that I was a squirrel. I can remember sitting there. It was the spring of the year. And I would watch those suckers. They would come out on those limbs and stretch, and they were so full of life and energy. And they would run up and down those trees, and, and there were acorns there. They did not have the hard time that I had. People came and fed them peanuts. Easy life. And the boy squirrels chased the girl squirrels. And every now and then they'd catch one. And nothing was happening in my life. I wished I was a squirrel. I would have given anything to have been anyone but me. But it would be over tomorrow. And one night, one Sunday night, I'd been down on the market bumming quarters or whatever I could get. This is in my hometown. And I, I couldn't bum anything. I couldn't get anything. And I decided to go up to the post office because always on Sunday evenings when I was in my glory, I would go to the post office to mail my expense check. And, and it was a thing in that small city. And I knew that I might see some people that had known me, but I no longer cared. And that lets you know that I was at the just to get a buck. And no one showed up that I knew. And, and I stumbled away from the post office. I wasn't drunk and I wasn't sober. I never was drunk and I never was sober in those days. And I crossed the street. And I didn't know where I was going. And I got to the stoplight and I couldn't go anymore. The light changed many times. And I tried to cross the street and could not. And I tried to go back and there was no place to go. And I tried to go to my right and to my left. And I was paralyzed. I was so frightened and so terrified and so hopeless and there was no one to turn to. I had, there was no one left in my life. I didn't know that I was a drunk. And finally, I did stumble across the street. But wait a second. If I had crossed the street when I wanted to and turned to the right the way I planned to go, I would have missed Joe. You see, when I finally was able to cross the street, the timing was absolutely incredible. And I submit to you that when you and I are ready to be changed. The help is there. I turned to the left and then came to the corner and turned to the right. And as I did, I saw Joe walking out of a doorway. And I knew what that doorway was. This was my hometown. A bunch of drunks met upstairs. Alcoholics Anonymous. And I saw Joe. Joe and I had been drinking buddies together. We got kicked out of the country club together because we, they said we started the fight on the dance, on the dance floor. We didn't start it. Somebody else started it. We were right in the middle of it. I never started fights. I just would just walk in a room and a fight would start. You, you can't believe that about me, can you? 
And there was Joe, and, and, and I was saved. I felt like Bill did when Evie showed up. Because Joe always had a drink, but wait a minute. He just wants, the poor Joe, he's an alcoholic. Well, I knew that Joe was an alcoholic. I used to carry Joe home from Silver Gables and, and put him in, in his bed. When I, in Virginia, when you carry someone, that means drive them. Well, I drove Joe, and I carried that sucker in the house and, and unbuckled his belt and took off his shoes and went in and talked to Gene and, and went back down to Silver Gables and, and said, if I ever get as bad as Joe is, I will quit. See, everybody's got a Joe. Joe was my alcoholic. He was the person that if I ever get as bad as he is, I will quit. Well, I walked around the corner, and there was Joe. And he had quit. And he came across the street, and we went around the corner, and he bought me something to drink, and I told him these wonderful stories about California, about how well things were in California. He didn't believe a word of it, of course. But he bought me something to drink. Two weeks later, I called him. I said, Joe, and I was ready to take my life. I would almost rather have taken my life than to call Joe. And I said, Joe, are you still sober? And I said the magic words. There might be something wrong with you. And that was my introduction to the world's worst. And from there, it was uphill after I went out and got drunk again. And when I came back with an, an honest desire to be changed. But I still had, among the problems in my life, and they were many, I still did not believe that there was a God. I was a smart aleck atheist. And I was dry and going to meetings regularly, but so absolutely miserable that I could hardly bear it. I was not about to take a drink, but so full of fear and animosity, and you know how it was because you've been there. One day I did something that no self-respect I get caught at, and I was selling second-hand cars from a, with, for a crooked second-hand automobile dealer. And someone walked on the lot. I went around behind the little shack and hid because I was afraid of people. And if you have to sell cars and you're afraid of people, you've got a real problem. <laughs> One day, a customer cornered me, and he wanted to try out a little, this little Ford right here. And there were two sets of keys in a cup. I never did figure out which set of keys. Someone had to come and select the set of keys. And I was dry in an AA. Did that give you a picture? So I went out and parked that old car beside Roanoke River so that I could hear the water in August, October, and July. I rolled the windows down because it was hot. There was a path there, a sidewalk, really. And to be sure that no one, I, wanted, I did not want to be caught doing this thing that I was about to do. My heart was racing. My pulse was pounding. I was embarrassed. I was so embarrassed that I could hardly stand it because I was going to talk to God. Now, if I had to call it praying, I wouldn't have done it. That would have been too much. And I, and I started talking. And it just poured out of me. I said, God, if you don't exist, and I don't believe you do. And I started off just right. I don't believe you exist. That was honest. But if you don't exist, there's no hope for me. I can't make it. I tried to die, and I could not, and I'm trying to live, and I cannot, and I do not know where to go or to whom to turn. Help me. And then I said, no, don't help me. I thought that might, if God did exist, mean that I would get a better job, and I couldn't handle the one I had. I said, and this was the strange thing, I said, change me. Change me. It, do you know that it had never occurred to me till that moment that I needed to be changed? I said, change me. And I meant it, and I hoped it, and I wanted it to be changed. I didn't know what it meant, but whatever it was, do it. 
I wish that I could be as honest and as open every day of my life as I was. And in that moment, in those minutes, I suddenly became aware that I was the person who was responsible for my life. Never until that moment had I ever assumed personal responsibility for the events that had taken place. That long list of people was there, and suddenly they all melted away, and I became aware that I was the one. And there was one other, Garnet. I wouldn't have let that sucker off the hook that easy. And the prayer was over, and there was no bolt of lightning, thunder in the sky. But three days later, coming back from an all-night poker game, in which I had lost and written some hot checks to some guys who, when those checks bounce, they will come and knock on your door and uh, threaten you. And I was not only frightened, scared to death, just normally, but I had that on my back. How was I going, I was going to cover those checks? And as I was driving along, I suddenly, I turned on the radio, and there was a preacher talking, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, and I talked, and I turned off the radio, and still, I thought I hadn't turned it off. I suddenly heard a voice, and the voice was in me and all around me, and said, perfect love, cast, and that was not my language in those days, and I checked the radio, but suddenly I felt so much love that I could hardly stand it. I was loved with an everlasting love, and the voice spoke in me. In words that I could hear, but not with my ear. And a presence or a mind thought thoughts in me that were images of my life as it had been, of my life as it was, and of my life as, as it could and would be. And I came to know and to understand in a way that I cannot describe to you what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was all about. I had never read the book at that time. It was about me being transformed and the hope and the change and the glory and the excitement of a new world. And I felt so good I could hardly stand it. I felt so good I could hardly bear it. This is what I had been looking for from the time that I was a child. It's what I thought I found when I took that first drink. And the way that I felt when I took that first drink was the way that I felt that Sunday morning, and it's the way I felt most of the time in the years that have followed. My life became so exciting. The miracles that happened. As I got that book and went into it went out into the world knowing that I was not alone, that the power was with me, and that for every change that I made, there would be an equivalent good that would take place. That this was an alive program, and that the promises are real, far more real than any of us have ever imagined. But there must be an equivalent action on our part. The promises are the results of the steps that we take, and the honesty and the sincerity that we put into it. And I was excited about my life. And, and one day, in the midst of the miracles, and was riding along, and the voice said to me, you've got to forgive Garnet. And I said, no. <laughs> Why? And the voice said, but you must. And I said, I will not. I, it was the first time that I had dug my heels in the ground since I got started. And I went on to explain that it was impossible to forgive Garnet. Did you, do you not know what Garnet has done? And the voice said, it doesn't make any difference what Garnet did. You have grown. You have changed. Your life is exciting. You will not grow one inch beyond this spot until you forgive Garnet. And I submit to you tonight that if your program is not working, you may have a Garnet. You may have somebody that you've come to resent or to blame for your unhappiness that has ensued since your sobriety, not before you came. You know, we recollect our garnets and other persons if we're not careful. And the voice said to me, forgiveness is not for garnet. It is for you so that you can be transformed. 
Leave Gurney to me. <laughs> and I said, and then I said something that was just so cunning. I said, well, I would forgive Garnet, but I don't know how. Now, didn't that sound great? Meaning, if you can show me how, I'll do it. And the boy said, okay, I'll show you how. And an image of my son, Alan, my youngest son, came into my mind, and the instruction was, and the boy said, you know how you love Alan? And I loved Alan. He was two years old and just had a smile that to this day has never left his face. And I loved him. And, I loved him. and the boy said, take Alan in your arms and love him. And I did. And the voice said, now, switch it to Garnet. And I switched it to Garnet. And he quit. And I said, see, it doesn't work. Do it until it works. And day after day, I loved Alan, and I switched it to Garnet, and it didn't work. And I tried to make it not work. Then I knew it really was for me. And one day, it almost worked. I, I didn't love him. But I understood him. You see, I came to understand that Garnet was just like I was. He had done the very best he could under the circumstances that had existed in his mind and life. And I forgave him. And I went to him and made my amends to him, not mentioning one time any of the things that he had done because they had left my heart. Forgiveness means that I had to give them up and they no longer existed in me. And I went to him and explained to him how I had lied about him to other persons and that I had frightened him on many occasions and how sorry I was and I would do everything I could to make it up and I would go to the people, all of them, and say to them what the truth was and I did because it said to do it. Not to think about it, but to do it. And I did it. And it was astonishing what happened to me. The peace that I came to know and the freedom and the joy as the miracles continued to unfold. And one day, I was driving along, still in that one of those old clunkers, because I, my job had not yet changed. And it was the fall of the year. It was about October. The new cars had just come out. And I was driving along, and here came a new Buick or Oldsmobile passing me on the left. And it was Garnet. And a short time before, I would have wanted to have run him off the road. My reaction would have been violent. And when I saw Garnet in that car, I felt so good I could hardly stand. A short time after that, Garnet had a heart attack and died. And I've always been so grateful to God that I got to see him and to forgive him. You see, when we're in this program and practicing its principles, we will always be at the right place at the right time to have the experiences that, although that we sometimes do not want. And it unfolded and it continued to do so. My life has been so good. Five years ago, well, I could tell you many things, I've talked too long, but God made me do it. Five years ago, I had an interesting experience. Well, it started before that time. My life did become successful by certain standards, more so and exciting, and it changed. Then once a few years ago, when I was 47 or 48 years of age, it came upon me in a very strange way that I might go in, but that I might become a minister, and I already was one in a certain sense, and so I... I did it. Ended up in Detroit, the very last place on earth that I ever thought that I was going to be because I'm a palm tree person and there aren't any palm trees in Detroit. I promise you that. There's one in my living room, but that's the closest you get to one. And I was sent there. I, it was revealed to me because the, the church that I took, and incidentally, Unity Church must be the national church for members of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's just there's so many of us that are in it. 
the church that I took was so, it was, it was a skid row church. It was a broke church. It had no image. It was a miserable place to see and to be. It was the last place I wanted to be. And the voice said, you will take this church so that it will be transformed. It will become a reflection of this program, of these principles, practice. And that bankrupt church that could not pay me a salary when I went there, and it will have 2,000 people on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning. We are on broadcast television covering the state of Michigan and other areas. And every time someone hears me speak, they hear this program. Oh, I don't call it the, fourth, the fifth or the sixth step, but this is there because they transform. Here in some 13 years has been a miracle. The principles work in our lives and in our affairs. Five years ago, I one day discovered that I had cancer of the lymph system on the left side of my face. And probably you can see that this side is different. The prognosis was not good. The, the promise was... But that was okay because I'd already died. And when you've been dead like I was and come alive, it really doesn't make any difference. And you don't know anybody that's over 150 years old anyhow. And one of these days we're going to have to go. And, and that might be it. But if it was, I was going to live each day as though it were my last, not believing that I would, planning not to, continuing through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God and believing that I still had some unfinished things to do and the surgery. And I was going into the hospital and enjoy the surgery because that's the joy of living. No matter what our experiences are the theme of the program. And I did. But in the surgery, there was an accident and I lost my voice. The nerve was paralyzed to my left vocal cord and I could not speak. And the, my facial nerve was damaged and my face was paralyzed. And I am a speaker. And I had no voice. And my face was paralyzed. And I did not know. They did not know whether I would live or not. And I enjoyed every moment of it. Can you believe the power that comes to us, the peace that comes to us? the serenity that comes to us and the living of this life. I want you to know, if you do not know it yet, that Alcoholics Anonymous is about miracle. It is about living, grasping a manner of living that transforms and changes and heals and soothes and comforts. And I had no fear. And when that surgery was over and my face was paralyzed and my voice was gone, I wandered into a chapel in that hospital and I prayed a prayer like I did 33 years ago. Help me. This is my life. And that voice said, I have not left you. This is for your good. This is for your unfolding. This is your peak opportunity to practice these principles now. If you will, all will be well. And I did. I wouldn't take anything for that experience. It's so interesting that I'm here with you tonight. Really interesting. See, some five years later, I'm scheduled for surgery again on Monday morning. As a matter of fact, they wanted to take me into surgery two weeks ago. And I said, no, I've got an AA retreat in Texas to do and a talk at a Unity Church in Kansas City, a group. And then, so Sunday evening, I'll go in. Monday morning, we'll have surgery. How do I feel about that? You know how I feel. I've already died. And this program has given me my life. I've been 10 years old twice. First, my biological natal birthday, the one I told you about, sitting on the railroad tracks. Years and years later, I was 10 years old in AA, and 
the miracles had happened. One day, the vice president of the Norfolk and Western Railway got in touch with me. I knew him quite well with his time as a result of, of the business that I was in and the success that had come. And besides the fact, I had taken his brother to his first AA meeting the, the, the year before and had carried him to meetings. Sometimes we really carried that sucker. He never did make it. But the time came, and, and that vice president and the railroad each year had an excursion, uh, had a, a thing in which they honored some of the people in the community, men in the community who had given most to their community that year. And I was one of those chosen. I did not want to go. I didn't have time to go. And he prevailed upon me to go. And I went, along with my friend, Bud, who was the president of the company, the vice president, the executive director of this company. And we arrived at the station in Roanoke, Virginia, late in the day. The passenger train was much smaller than time. But there were two business cars that presidents and vice presidents of railroads loved to travel in, attached to the end of the train. Business cars, party cars. And as, I, as Bud and I boarded the train, the vice president was there to receive us. And he turned to his porter and said, John, they will have a cup of coffee, meaning they're members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never had any anonymity. I was introduced to one or two people in that car that I did not know. There was a jerk of the wheels. We were leaving the station, and the vice president came to me and said, Jack, you will go into the next car. We'll be serving dinner in a few minutes once we leave the city. Each of the cars had a table, standing table in the middle of it. I went into the next car, and he introduced me to a couple of people that I had not yet met, and suddenly I stood there transfixed. Remember that I told you that we'll be at the right place at the right time? You see, this was my tenth AA. And when I was ten years old as a child, sitting on the bank, watching a passenger train go by, I had prayed a prayer. I had wanted to be, I said, oh God, could I be on a train going west? And as we picked up speed, I looked out on Shenandoah Avenue, 5th Street and 6th Street and 7th Street and 8th Street, and I knew in a moment that I would see the very spot on which I sat as a child. And I did. The tears streamed down my face. Was that a coincidence? Was that prayer of my childhood the reason that I was on that train? The program of miracles. You see why I'm so grateful for my life? For the God that, when I've been sober a year, my birthday, someone gave me a prayer, the chief of the Dakotas. Oh, great spirit, whose voice I hear in the winds and whose breath gives life to all the world, hear me. I come before you, one of your many children. I am small and weak. I need your strength and wisdom. Let me walk in beauty. Make my eyes ever to behold the red and purple sunset. And make my hands respect the things you have made, my ears sharp to hear your voice. Make me wise so that I may know the things you have taught my people, the lesson you have hidden in every rock. I seek strength, not to be superior to my brothers, but that I may be able to fight my greatest enemy, myself. Make me ever ready to come to you with clean hands and straight eyes so that when life fades as a fading sunset, my spirit can come to you without shame.
Wow. Jack, thank you. Homer, leave the poor man alone. <laughs> Jack, thank you.